Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast and today's guest is Tanil Miller. She's a transformation and experience leader and the author of The Flourishing Effect. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tanil. She's not only got plenty of great ideas but she gives some really practical advice which will help you navigate the changes that are happening right now in your organisations. We talked about a range of subjects, everything from what Tanil means by flourishing at work including creating workplaces that fulfil human needs inspired by positive psychology. We also talk about common obstacles in the workplace, why it's important to revolutionize meetings. Tanil talks about the changing relationship between employer and employee, and also why we need to adapt to build company cultures reflective of a more diverse workforce, including remote freelance and contractors. Finally, we talk about some important issues like learning and development, creating positive relationships with technology, and the importance of getting work and life to fit together. So thanks very much to Tanil for joining me. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about Tanil's work, you can find links in the show notes. You can also get in touch with me there if you'd like me to come and speak to you and your team about any of the themes we discussed today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tanil Miller. So Tanil, it's great to have you on the show today. I'm going to start with a really broad question, but hopefully a positive and uplifting question. I'm interested, based on everything you've learned through your career, the work that you do, and through writing your book, how you suggest people can start shifting their mindset towards a more flourishing work life? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, you know, thanks for having me, Ali. I think, you know, the main thing, whether you think about it on an individual level or as an organizational wide level, I really go to where, you know, Martin, Martin Seligman's work started, where it started on flourishing, where it's like really getting rid of all of the negativity around psychology or around situations, in this case, the, the workplace, all the friction, all the ways the organization um, frustrates human needs. I would say getting rid of that, right, as a effect. And then also on top of that, starting to really focus on how do we actually meet some of these human needs? And that's what actually causes flourishing. Go on then, let's start then. What are the most common obstacles, negative influences, which can get in the way? Yeah, well, um, feel free to stop me along the way because I can (laughs) tend to ramble a lot because there's a lot of them. But I think that there are um, when you think about friction, there are things like people feel like they need to step back in time uh, to go to work. So if the organization basically provides some sort of a distorted reality is what I call it. And that could be things like clunky old technology, you know, out in our normal lives outside of work. Everything's very personalized, very user friendly, um, that sort of thing. Amazon, Spotify, you know, everything pulls in our data in that sense. But when we go to work, a lot of the times it's old clunky technology. The data doesn't talk to other pieces of data across the organization. And if organizations who haven't, you know, really leveraged AI yet, which plenty of them haven't, because it's still very new for most of them. um, It just feels like a distorted reality inside. And I think another piece that falls into that distorted reality bucket would be when you operate from an outdated social contract. So I think we all are pretty aware at this point that, you know, the days when people dedicated their entire career to one organization and in return, they got predictable raises, bonuses, and a pension. That doesn't happen anymore. Today, there's no pensions. Uh, wages are underwhelming in most cases. And then companies are perfectly comfortable laying people off as soon as profits dip below a certain margin. So I think operating in that outdated social contract is just really confusing to people. So those are kind of some things when I think about that first bucket of the distorted reality. 
And then there are things that, you know, a lot of our workplace practices very much contradict, I would say, human nature. And so that's things like treating people like value to be extracted instead of humans, right? So we're treating them like machines instead of humans. Or if you think about um, the work perhaps isn't engaging in itself because it's been stripped of autonomy, creativity, and individual ownership in return for like standardizing the work, right? There's treating adults like children. So return to office demands would be a good example of that. And then there's all kinds of other things that frustrate our human needs at work, like, you know, lack of um, certainty, lots of ambiguity. Are there layoffs coming? Are there not? You know, all kinds of rumors happening. If there isn't good change management, lack of psychological safety and inclusion, you know, all those kinds of things I would put as well as maybe like bad managers, I would put that in the bucket of how we frustrate people's human needs at work. And then when you think about friction, again, besides clunky technology, it's all the excess meetings, all the bureaucracy, all the different processes. And I have to add my um, my name and my information 1,800 times because the API and different things haven't pulled the data together. So there's that. And then there's also, I think a lot of people don't think about emotional friction, like microaggressions and feeling mm. the need to code switch and deal with kind of these you know, masculine default and white professional standards. So I'm going to stop there just because that was quite a few items, but I, I literally see it falling into those three big buckets. There's a lot, isn't there? And of course, not every single organization is going to hopefully be um, guilty of each of those crimes, if you call them crimes. But at scale, particularly when you're thinking about individual leaders having to take action to change some of these poor practices, it can be difficult to identify actionable steps to just get started so where could a company start to move away from some of these outdated working models what would be a practical step that they might take in order to do that yeah well this is this is a great question because again we want to make everything practical right and that's again i do that very much in the book because it's one thing to say oh you know this is the theory these are maybe some examples that's wonderful but if we don't know how have like practical tools and strategies that we can implement tomorrow it's not going to really help so i would say just to get started one of the things i do with my clients and people could do it themselves as well is we would do basically like an employee journey mapping exercise of some sort so just thinking through each different employee persona or group or population in that way and really working through it as okay, so if you think about their day-to-day activities, the entire employee journey, so when they onboard the employee life cycle, offboard, all of that, but even in like day-to-day, like just highlighting and looking at it through the lens of the employee, like what types of friction do they have to um, experience every day? Like, what is that like? And again, a lot of that comes in bringing the folks in the room, maybe having a cross-functional sample um, of folks and just having them come in and create a committee with you or something like that, or you could just do it on your own, but just understand like, what are those points of friction along their journey? Um, Surveys also work for this as well. And once you establish what those points of friction in the ways that the work frustrates people's human needs, um, then you can actually start removing as many of those as possible. And there's a lot of things you can remove in that regard. So for example, let's say that you, one of the biggest pain points we hear a lot is like, oh, I have so many meetings. I can't get my real work done. I'm back to back. We can't get people's um, calendars to open up that kind of thing. I just actually helped a client with this. And we developed basically like a protocol after doing some research in the organization of like what the pain points were. We developed basically like an organizational wide kind of guardrails, if you will, of like etiquette, like meeting etiquette, developing an entire protocol and a framework to determine if you even need a meeting. Because a lot of the times it's actually, you could just have a Google Doc sent around ahead of time to have people weigh in on things. And then if you still, after all that need 
two of those or four of those people instead of 20 uh, to make a decision, for example, you would actually just have that meeting and it's like 15 minutes basically to make that last yeah. um, decision. So that's just one really super practical example, but just really finding out where those places of friction are and removing them as many of them as possible. Without fail, the reinventing meetings idea is one of the more popular things that I talk to people about or write about. It doesn't matter how long we spend talking about it or how much acknowledgement everyone has about how many meetings we have or just how disorganized meetings are or the fact that you have meetings about meetings and then you have a meeting with no clear resolution or next steps and yet we still continue to do so. So what is it that's stopping companies from doing that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, there could be a lot of things, but what I see most often is it's a, so if you think about an organization, right, whether it's large or small, it's rare that every single person is on the same page, if that makes sense. And they're not only aware of everything that everybody else is aware of, but they're also aligned behind it. And especially the larger the company gets, the more you see silos and different departments. And again, as soon as people come and go, that also changes that dynamic. So I think a lot of the times they're well-meaning. And in fact, this client I just worked with, everybody was so nice. They're like, oh, we want, we all want to find out the answer, right? We're not trying to you know, stack your calendar with 1,800 meetings a day. Yeah. We're not trying to be unavailable for people. We're just trying to survive basically and get through the day. So I think people are well-meaning, but it's almost like because it's not operating from a very centralized place where every single person is aligned and accountable and there's a protocol, like I said, some sort of a, it's not like a mandate, but it's basically like, here's kind of our guidance, right? Our guardrails, here's some tools on how to do it because most organizations don't have that or even like working agreements on teams is another good example. If you don't actually become deliberate about these things in the very beginning and say, this is how we're all agreeing to work as a team and then maybe iterate as you learn more and you go, I think it's very hard for everyone to be on the same page because everybody, because some people have a very different view too. Some people think, oh gosh, you know, I have all these meetings on my calendar. I'm busy. This looks like job security. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm getting a lot of work done. My boss thinks, and then there's other people that are like, I didn't get anything done in there. And so I have yeah. to go work on the weekend. So it's really depends. So I think everyone's approaching it kind of from different vantage points. And so I think that adds to the mix as well. What about decision-making? Because, you know, I I guess with these types of challenges or resolutions, solutions to the challenges, it's often easier to make a change in a smaller organization, particularly if you've got the buy-in of the founder or the exec team or whoever else. It's easier to make those changes. So at scale in a larger organization, what's the solution to that problem? How do we think about organizational design in order to be able to initiate those changes without it just becoming a a process slowed down just by the sheer size and scale of the company? Yeah, that's another great question. I mean, one of the things that I recommend to a lot of my clients, if it's not already the case, is to have sort of a, whether it's change or the employee experience, there's two different ways you can look at this, I think. I would say there needs to be some sort of a centralized um, role slash office that owns it. So for example, if it's like different changes and transformations in the organization, I recommend that they have, they establish a, uh, like a transformation office basically that has maybe mm. a chief transformation officer who's sitting on the C level with lead with the CEO and the other folks. So they have a seat at that table. They're aware of every single strategic initiative coming down the pipe that year, for example, and they're actually helping weigh in and space things out based on like a calendar view because they have the vantage point across the entire organization. So then they can decide, oh, do we need to push this change to later? or that decision, for example, to your question, or whatever that might be, somebody that's got that very centralized bird's eye view that can see across and what's hitting people when and where the decisions need to be made and not and that kind of thing. I think that can be very helpful. And that also would apply, I think, if you were to look at not like a CHRO, but almost like a chief 
um, culture slash performance officer. That's something new I've been discussing with some people lately mm -hmm. where it's not a compliance HR role, but it's literally, again, that very senior C-suite role that looks at culture as a, as a very strategic lever and the actual to drive performance of the people, to literally drive the business strategy. So again, they have that bird's eye view to see everything that's happening, all the different data points from HR, all the different business pain points and ways that we need to drive this strategy or that thing over there. But it's a centralized view that again, owns it, sees it, has, gets other folks involved. Because again, if, if it's in HR only, or it's in this the business only, it's not going to get the traction it needs. And that I think also plays into decision-making and accountability. But if you have people at the very, very top that they are owning that, because the CEO is too busy, I think, to own all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you have these other roles that are very much empowered in that same way, but they're focused and they're resourced on these specific things, I think that's when things can get done very quickly. Mm. What about the role of managers leaders in that process because i think you use this expression as well but we certainly use it here there's often a case of tall poppy syndrome within companies where or another way of putting it is people don't want to put their head above the parapet and try new different things so you end up using what you might describe as tried and trusted but in many cases is tired and lacking in imagination and existing in the past so actually many of these ideas about how we should think about redesigning work on filtering through because people aren't prepared to take risks. Is that true? Where have you seen good examples of people actually taking these kind of risks and it manifesting in you know, innovation and culture and change within organizations? Yeah, that is a really good question. I'm going to actually approach it from two levels just because that's like the work that I do. I see things at a very systematic level, like how the system could be optimized to actually enable the environment that we're talking about. But then to your point, each individual actually needs to take ownership to and do their whatever their part is. So I think at a organizational level, if you want people to be doing innovate, you know, taking risks, making innovative things happen, um, driving change, all that kind of stuff, the number one thing you need is psychological safety. So you need to create that culture. And again, we can talk about how you want to do that, but simple things like, you know, the leadership team and managers showing account of, or I'm sorry, um, vulnerability, sharing stories about that, whether it's work-related or personal or whatever, little things like that, um, encouraging, rewarding, telling stories of people that are, you know, quote, you know, trying this out and maybe made a mistake, but guess what we learned from it? Like all kinds of stuff like that. I think at the organizational level and the very senior leadership level, that kind of thing needs to happen um, just to set that tone so people feel comfortable doing it. And not just for a week, it's like all the time, keep it going. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing, whether it's a manager or even like an HR professional, if they want to kind of start taking these risks and saying, oh, I want to drive change and do these things, but I don't want to like, like you said, stick my neck out. One of the things that I always talk about, and again, it depends on the organization, because if it doesn't have a great culture, it's, it probably doesn't matter. You probably will get in trouble for sticking your neck out, unfortunately, depending on where you know the power lies in that way. But what I would say is, any program you want to drive, any change you want to make, anything you want to try, I would say let's first kind of make sure that we can tie it to the organization's business strategy. So what are the big strategic initiatives that the business is trying to drive? What are the metrics around that? That sort of thing. If you can start there, and, and that's what we do in a lot of our change work, right? Any change we're making, we, we ground it in that vision, in that business case, in that pain point for the business, in the business strategy, whatever you want to call it. We ground it in that. This is why we're doing it. 
And then here's the metrics that, you know, the benefits, that sort of thing. And I work back from there as to whatever you're trying to stick your neck out on and do, how that ladders up to that. I think when you do that, it's really hard for uh, leadership to have a problem with that. And then if you want to drive it down, that's actually also the language that I would suggest using when you're driving it down. Like if you're a manager and you want to try X new thing on your team to, you know, meet this part of the business strategy, share that business strategy so people know why we're doing it and then show it, show them what their part is in driving it is what I would say. You alluded earlier on to a new deal, or you didn't use those words, but you do in the book, between employers and employees. What do you mean by that? Why is, why is that so relevant right now? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. And it's becoming more and more reality every day, I think. Um, so in the book, I propose a new social contract, not the one that we've had previously that isn't obviously valid anymore. So this new social contract, I think, is based on transparency mutual value creation and a long-term partnership, kind of long game, not the short game, let's get butts and seats and then lay them off because we you know, had too many people or we didn't need them, that sort of thing. So I think in this regard, it's like intelligent organizations that are trying this type of thing. They really understand, I think, again, that long game that today's employee could be tomorrow's client, brand ambassador, talent reefer, or even a boomerang employee. So to orchestrate this shift, organizations really need to ensure that there's mechanisms in place, I think, for both parties to access and add value as quickly as possible. And then also to continue to positively impact each other's ecosystem, even when they're not formally engaged. So even after I stop working for your company, there should be an alumni network or something like that that's keeping me, um, keeping your organization top of mind maybe providing different job opportunities or pro, um, projects that are coming up that they need help with, or just ways to kind of keep the keep them in the loop, essentially, and keep that, um, I guess, in the network kind of fresh in that regard. And I think LinkedIn is a good example of this. And I think their practice was like, as soon as employees started, I think it's like their onboarding day or their onboarding week, they actually asked them right away, what they want to do once they leave LinkedIn, because they're just, a, they're just very transparent. They're like, we know you're not going to stay here forever. That's fine. We want to get the best of you while you're here. We want to give you the best of yourself, you know, when you leave, so you're more valuable in the marketplace, that type of thing. So they really address that very transparently head on right away. And so I think that there's a lot of like ways that organizations could be playing with these, but surprisingly they're not. Yeah, I think it was Reid Hoffman, I think, who popularized the idea of a tour of duty, wasn't it? Which yeah. I would really like that idea. And it's obviously permeated into LinkedIn culture if they're still if they're still talking in those terms. And can I and I will relate it to that point, but also going back to something you mentioned earlier, you said we could dig into the idea of culture. So I spoke to John Windsor um, of Open Assembly on the podcast a week or so ago, and we were talking about open talent strategy. And of course, the idea behind an open talent strategy is there aren't just employees and employers. It's more complex than that. We've got contractors, freelancers. We're using all sorts of platforms in to, to get talent in on a short-term basis, but to fulfill specific needs. Now, obviously, this adds complexity to the workplace, but if you listen to some of the voices, particularly in the press, but also on LinkedIn, the only way to build a good working culture is for everyone to come into the office, even if it's just three or four days a week, and for all those people to be employees. And of course, that doesn't reflect this new reality. So with that in mind, what are the new ways we should be thinking about building culture within a company? Yes. Uh, I always laugh when people think that culture is like, oh, Caco Tuesday in the office, or it's our happy hour. That's our culture. And, and, you know, I always tell them, I'm like, think about it. 
whether you're on a train sending an email after work or you're on the beach or you're at a client site or you're working from home, you're demonstrating your culture in all those places. So it's really, it obviously can't just be you being in the office. And so I always encourage companies to really just think about like, if you think about you, I think they need to get the right, dis, uh, the right uh, definition of culture. First of all, once they understand what culture actually is, then it's easy to say, oh, okay. So if it's this, not what we thought it was, then, you know, we can go from there. And so in this regard, I would just always help them understand that like, Culture is very much how you treat each other every single day, right? Like what you can get away with, what people do when you're not there, when the leader isn't in the room or when they are in the room, that type of thing. So if you think about it just simply as the culture is our behaviors and it changes moment to moment when people are coming and going, when there's different changes in the organization, that your culture is changing every time those things happen. And so I think if you think about it that way, then it's kind of like, how do we build that culture? Well, Literally, it's as simple as what behaviors do you demonstrate every day? And again, I think the best place to start is with leaders, right? Like we all need to own culture. We're all responsible for it. But again, as we know, just like with parents and children, the leaders are the ones setting the tone. So the second that the leader is not role modeling the values and behaviors they want to see in the culture is the second that other people will start following that, right? Whether they whether it's out of the radar or over the radar, that's going to start happening. So the easiest way to get started is for leaders just to start role modeling it. And it, again, with that, probably want to get leaders together ahead of time and say, what are those values and behaviors that we really want to see that's actually going to drive our business strategy? Because that's the other thing is I always tell leaders, culture isn't fluffy because number one, it's like a, it's like a uh, autonomous car, autonomous vehicle is how I think of it, right? So if the algorithm is programmed right and we have that deliberateness up front as far as leaders of the kinds of behaviors we want to see and we're making them, we're speaking them out. So it's very clear what they are. We're demonstrating them. We're rewarding them. We're telling stories about them, that sort of thing. Then it's like, the, it starts to be like an autonomous vehicle for driving the strategy of the organization. So that's, I think it just, that's the best way I would say to get started is just literally going and role modeling it and rewarding and acknowledging those behaviors every day. Mm. And related to that training or development, you know, these are for me representative of a great culture. I always find it crazy, really, that you just don't completely align growth of the talent within your company to the growth of the organization. I mean, you look at any exceptional business, any exceptional organization, and they invest in people, invest in their growth, invest in their development, whether that be financially investing in training or simply just giving them the time, the space to to grow. But again, it's complicated by the relationship with the worker so if you're an employee as we've discussed you're not necessarily going to be an employee for life and nowadays people switch roles far more quickly but at least if you're investing in that employee the view is that you feel like you're going to get a return from that by them applying some of the lessons they learn the skills they build into their roles what about with freelance talent for example how should companies think about investing in those people that's a really good one. That's a tricky one too, right? Because I get, I understand both sides of that. I understand the employer side of like, hey, we know we not only do we assume this person won't stay forever, but we know because the contract is six months or whatever the yeah. case may be. Yeah. Um, but I think what I would what I would tell them is a couple of things. Number one, I think um, whether it's training or access to coming to town halls or whatever the thing is, I think a lot of companies treat contractors very differently and they don't invest again to your point whether it's paying for training or letting them come again to town halls or offsites or whatever, but they need to realize that that's actually setting the tone in the culture of you are different. 
you're less than that type of thing. And then that means that other people in the organization that are full-time employees may also start treating them that way. And that creates a really icky environment, really toxic environment, I think, um, on both sides of it. So that's one data point I kind of bring up to them just to say, hey, you don't realize this, but that actually sets the tone for this person is less than. Um, The other thing I would say is that, again, to your point, what I see is the the organizations that do this really well are the ones that lead... um, What's the word? I feel like they lead with generosity in a sense where it's like, hey, we're going to give you the access to the training. We're going to give you this over here. And that actually psychologically engenders people to actually want to go the extra mile. So it's kind of pays for itself, if that makes sense, like whatever that whatever that is. And I think it was Heather McGowan who was saying she's a workplace expert. You probably know her. And she was saying like learning is a new pension nowadays, right? So like, again, because we don't give people pension because we don't give people all these perks in the organization, learning is something that can actually be orchestrated for very inexpensive, low, no cost ways. And I can talk about some of these that I do in the book, but like, there's a lot of ways you could do, whether it's contractors or full-time employees, where it literally is growing and actualizing them and their potential, but it's also helping them meet your business goals. Because as you're delegating more to them, and as you're kind of stretching them and growing in them in certain ways, they're actually have a, a... uh, bigger capacity, I think, to add value in the organization as well. Oh, yeah, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear more about this, as I'm sure people listening would as well. Because like you say, when you can jump to training costs money, giving people the opportunity to learn and develop is expensive. And in some cases, it does require an investment. But there are, as you say, other ways either learning in the flow of work or using peer-to-peer learning or various other things which can help people feel like they're making progress and that is in very many cases for people's career development within an organization what they value they want to feel like they're moving forward so maybe you could talk to, to some of those and you know some real life examples that um, you've seen yeah absolutely well and this is too it's like whether it's contractors or full-time employees i think there was a microsoft study recently that said around, I think it was like 75% of people would stay at their organization longer if they had more opportunities for learning and growth. But like most of them believe that they have to change companies in order to get that. So that's just, if you think about it just from that, even just in that perspective of all the people that are leaving your company because you're not providing it, I think that that probably costs a lot more than providing some extra videos and and engagement and learning and things. But I think, you know, some of the things I've seen as far as low, no cost ways to develop people are um, internal marketplaces are really cool. I think Microsoft or I'm sorry, MasterCard did this during the pandemic specifically. They, um, They actually didn't have to lay off even one person during the pandemic because what they found was they they didn't have to hire more people either because what they had with this uh, internal marketplaces is that they actually would put projects and gigs and things up there so people could actually say oh i have a few extra hours this week i want to learn this over here and guess what they're learning and stretching and growing and also the the organization doesn't have to hire other people or pay contractors to do that work because somebody internally is doing it or a contractor they're already working with is doing it so that's a win-win and then I think when you think about um, cross-mentoring and reverse-mentoring, I've done this at PwC when I used to work there. I've seen this in a couple different organizations where you create these either cross-mentoring or reverse-mentoring programs. And especially when it comes to all the different cutting-edge technology today, this can be extremely impactful because you have like um, the older, you know, more senior people typically are not as comfortable with technology, just stereotypically, and the younger folks are. So why not partner them together and they can help enrich each other? So the younger person's getting tons of professional development and shadowing and just understanding and kind of observing how that leader interacts and how they conduct business and that sort of thing, 
while the leader is learning and getting more comfortable with technology. So those are two of my favorites. I also love job crafting. Um, I did this in one of my previous roles. I always recommend to do this wherever possible, managers, whatever, just having those conversations with your people very frequently and especially as early as possible and just finding out where do they want to grow? Where do they see their strengths? What are some aspects about their current job that if they could, they would love to get rid of it and get it off their plate and see where you can make some swaps and tweaks here and there. And that can really go a long way. Yeah, I always really like that idea. I think that part of the issue with that principle is that we don't spend enough time, even in, as individuals, reflecting on the things that we really do and don't enjoy about our specific jobs. It's, it's easy to see it as a whole. You know, I either like doing this job or I don't like doing it. Whereas very often, jobs are made up of a series of tasks and interactions and communications with different people. And actually, if you break it down and reflect upon those that you do enjoy and you don't enjoy, you can start picking apart the things that would be part of your ideal job. And I think as a manager, you know, this is probably something I've learned over the past few years, which I wish I'd done more. Actually giving people the opportunity to self-report on these things is part of the challenge because, again, and, and I think this is part of the reason that performance reviews and appraisals are, are broken because trying to do once a year and trying to get a real deep understanding about what somebody really does enjoy and doesn't enjoy is impossible. Even doing it every quarter, very very difficult are you starting to get towards this with some sort of regular check-ins with people but i still don't think there's enough information being shared and enough reflection being done by individuals to help improve this which makes the life of manager actually pretty difficult in, in giving people the opportunity to craft their jobs yeah i think um it is true and i think that you know managers as we know are squeezed more than ever from you know up down all around that sort of thing as far as timing and everything else but the beauty is with all the ai and automation and technology that's coming these days i think it actually opens up a lot of opportunity for managers to actually have the managing be managed by technology and then they can actually embark on this more humane journey where they're having these one-on-ones much more frequently with their people they're not just having them to tick a box here and there whatever but they're actually drilling down i think that's something that's going to be interesting to see how managers deal with this is i feel like they're all going to need some sort of a EQ training, if you will, in the sense of how do you drill down? How do you find out what's not being said from your direct reports in these one-on-ones? And what questions can you be asking? You know, again, about what things they would love to get off their plate if they could. And then the manager gets creative and says, oh yeah, I found out that, you know, we could change the relationship with IT and you over here and we can give this task to so-and-so, whatever the case may be. But I think that's a great opportunity for managers going forward to really Focus on upskilling themselves in really understanding the psychology of humans, because that's going to be the big game changer going forward. Because again, technology is going to take on this mundane, repetitive stuff. So how do we get more humane and cultivate the the greatness of our people by becoming more in tune with who they are as humans? Yeah, there is a bigger point about technology, isn't there? Because I think lots of people have felt, particularly since the pandemic and since shifting towards perhaps working um, remotely more and having more connectivity. First, that was a great thing, but over time it's felt more like something which is impinging upon their personal life as well. So where does technology fit into people having a healthy work-life relationship? And just as an extension of that, to what extent is it an employer's responsibility to involve themselves in that versus the role of an individual? Yes, that's, I think that's, again, it's kind of like the meeting question, right? Like it's on a systematic organizational level, we have to do things a certain way and managers have a role in this and then each individual also has a role. So what I would say is um, I'm a big fan of team agreements. So whether that's 
um, the entire organization it does something like what we talked about with the protocol about like when we collaborate, maybe we have certain hours, we can only schedule meetings within these certain working hours, or we can only send emails. And again, technology helps with this, right? So there's ways with technology where we can basically say, no, you can, you can um, write all the emails you want and do all the stuff you want, but it won't actually go out of your outbox until the next morning during working hours or something like that. So there's certain organizational level or levers that we can be pulling as far as the culture of how we do these things and, you know, setting boundaries and parameters around it. But then the manager also has a very big role in the second that a manager says, oh yeah, go ahead, work like balance. But then they're sending emails on the weekend and they're not taking time off themselves and that sort of thing. That sets a tone for their team. So the manager also has to be role modeling uh, the boundaries, the behaviors. And I've seen some do this really well where it's like, um, hey guys, I'm taking the whole week off. I'm not checking the email. If, if it's an emergency, you can text me, but that's it. Or not even that. So really being proactive as a manager in role modeling better uh, healthy boundaries and focusing on your own well-being and allowing your team to do it. And then on an individual level, I think we all need to be adults and own our calendars, own our um, ways of working that are best for us. So for example, if I need to, I want to get my workout in every morning and I want to get to bed early at night and, or I need to go for a walk at lunch or whatever those things are, I need to proactively put those boundaries on my calendar and not just have them there, but also don't go back on them, actually enforce them as you go. And the beauty of that is the more that each individual contributor even does that themselves and the more they respect other people's boundaries, the more everybody feels more comfortable doing it. And I actually do this in a lot of the organizations that I um, consulted in the sense of, you know, when I come and embed with the team, specifically if they have, if this is on the list of things they want to change, I role model that very blatantly. And I've even had people say to me like, well, you know, we, we have to make sure we have our cameras on or we have to do this and that. And I'm like, if you're trying to change this, we need to actually change it. And so sometimes you just need a change maker too to come in there and say, all right, we said we want to do this differently. I'm going to take mm. the brunt of it, you know what I mean, and deal with the criticism and whatever. But essentially, the more that people do that, you see that it gives other people the permission to do those right behaviors as well. I had to do this back when I was running my last company and it did take some persuasion of for people to buy into it so whether it was between 9 and 11 in the morning that's when I get my best work done and therefore I am unavailable and I would advise you to do the same unless there's a very good reason you don't want to for example maybe three to five is the best time for you to do that but whatever it is we all need at least a couple of hours a day for deep work as it's become popularly known and other things like we actively ensure that you're going to switch off all of your emails and your messaging from your phone when you go on holiday it's part of your job you have to do it you have to delete the apps which is actually what i do now i delete linkedin email from my phone when i go away so i think sometimes things like that can work pretty well so yeah i'm with you and also just trying to connect positive habits in your personal life to your work is really important so you mentioned doing a workout in the morning I genuinely believe I do better work if I fit in some exercise during the day. Therefore, I shouldn't have to make an excuse to do that. It should actually be part of my philosophy and part of my strategy. And again, I think if you can be brave in the way that you lead organizations, but most importantly, communicate why these things are important. So don't hide away and pretend that you're doing your work and then slip off to the gym as a leader explain that you're going to the gym because by doing that you're going to be more switched on in the afternoon and as you say that models behavior to perhaps more junior members of staff to be able to do that as well 100 percent. i i want to apply to you i just i love that so much and you know i've sat there scratching my head over the years because again to your point i know exactly that like if i have my movement my water my sleep all that stuff i know i operate a thousand times better so i have yeah. no problem doing it 
But I, I get the sense, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I get the sense that a lot of leaders don't do that. And to your point, sometimes it might take a more junior person role modeling it, as scary as it is. Mm. If we do that, and to your point, if we say why we're doing it, it's not like, oh, I'm just slacking off playing you know, games over here to decompress. It's like, no, I'm going to be a much more valuable employee to you because I function at a much higher level. I think if we use that kind of language, if you're a yeah. more junior person, for example, yeah. that's going to get the attention of leaders. And I've actually done that too. And you kind of start seeing them say, Oh, I guess I could go for a walk at lunch too. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're doing walking meetings. This is great. Yeah, great. I, oh, I love a walking meeting. Also, I love a nap. I've been making sure that I always talk about napping for years, for the last three or four years. Because again, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I don't have as many opportunities to nap as I did um, a couple of years ago, which is a real shame because I do feel like my performance is diminished in the afternoon particularly. But I do a lot of work with... You know, leaders who maybe have got young kids and I guess it's because I've been really open about the challenges I've had with trying to find work-life balance which I could never find and also lack of sleep and there's one answer to that which is to fit in a very short nap in the middle of the day and then significantly improve my productivity throughout the afternoon so I often get a lot of funny looks still from people who have more traditional views about what a workday should look like when I talk about having an app in the middle of them, but then I always say, let's look at outcomes. And I'm sure that in terms of productivity, there's far more happening at my end than theirs. But there's a lot of challenges we still face in ch changing people's deep held beliefs about how work should be done and what it should look like. I think you're hundred percent right. And I think that's where we just have to stand strong and just keep on, you know, again, it's, it's a different way. It's a new way, just like remote and flexible work is new and different for a lot of people. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean we need to go mm. back in time three, four five years. Cause we just didn't know how to do it. We need to actually, to your point, bring everybody into the future. And I think if the more we use that language and the more bold we are say, Hey, this is how we function better. And again, to your point, just being transparent, being proactive about it, having the team agreements, have, you know what I mean? Just the more we do that, the more it normalizes it, I think. Mm. And, and looking forward, from what you've seen with the organizations that you work with, is there such a big difference between, say, Gen Z and the older workforce? So on one hand, I see yes, right? On one hand, I see that um, Gen Z and millennials, just again, because the world, and I write about I think it's chapter three in my book, but like maybe it's chapter four. I don't know. But basically because they were born in a time that they were born in when technology became what it was. So we have um, digital, what is it? Digital natives and analog natives. That's a really big piece here because of that. And because of all the different events and things that are happening in the world, the way that technology connects us and all the different issues. Yes, they are different in some ways. And because they know that their career is going to be their whole life, you're not, retirement isn't a thing anymore. Pensions aren't a thing. We don't work like a slave every day until we're 60. And then we basically are retired, but we die because, you know, we have no meaning and purpose anymore. And that, that's not how we operate today. So in a way, yes, I think they are different. And they realize the benefit to your point of the work-life flywheel effect. It's kind of like, we need to be hustling and flowing all day, you know, every day, every week, every month, every year, our whole life. So it needs to be a very much more sustainable model where we're building in our life into our work and we're building our work in and we're taking sabbaticals and we're taking breaks because it's going to be forever. So it's a mm. much more, I think, sustainable model in a lot of ways. So in those ways, yes, I think it's different. But at the same time, I think so many of the everything they're asking for. These are human needs, not generational needs. And if you ask the other generations, if they really you get in a private room with them, they want it too. They just didn't have the courage because the environment was different to speak up for the things they wanted in those days. So I, I think there are differences, but I also think it's very universal human needs. 
So we're nearing the end of our chat and I've really enjoyed it. There's loads of really useful practical tips in there. Is there anything else you want to leave us with, either about the book or just ideas about how we should be thinking about building organizations going into the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, thanks for asking. And I think you know, the main takeaway is I heard this saying a couple of years ago, and it was something about creating environments where people can do the best work of their lives. And for me, I just think that that really sums it up because on one hand, if they're doing the best work of their lives, they are thriving. The employees are thriving. But because they're doing the best work of their lives, the organization is also thriving and flourishing. And yeah. so for me, that's really been the crux of my work. And I want leaders to understand that it's not one or the other business success or people are happy. It's both. And yeah. in fact, when you put the people first and you make sure they're solid, they're going to drive your business and make everything flourish. So that's what I would leave people with. Love it. Thanks, Daniel. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Neil. Thanks to you for listening. Next week, I've got a great founder and CEO sharing insights around employee experience and performance management. So if you're interested in those themes, make sure you tune in again then.